Welcome back to Coming Up for Air with hosts Dominique Simone Levine, Laurie McDougall, and Kayla Solomon. This podcast is produced with love by the Allies and Recovery team in solidarity with our listeners. Come in and sit with us for conversations on the most pertinent topics for families navigating a loved one's addiction. We created this podcast along with the learning modules and discussion blog in support of you. We salute the work you are doing and your dedication to helping your loved one find a way through. And now, coming up for air. Good morning, everybody. This is Laurie McDougall back on Coming Up for Air. I'm here with my co-host, Dominique Simone Levine. Hi, Dominique. How are you this morning? I'm well. Good morning, everybody. And Kayla Solomon. How are you, Kayla? I'm quite well. Good morning. So today's topic, we we started having a discussion and thought, oh, what a great topic to cover for this morning's podcast. Today's topic is going to be based on boundaries. We really want to have kind of a deep discussion on boundaries because they're so difficult to set. They're so difficult to determine what they are. And it's really difficult for everybody to identify what their roles are with setting boundaries. So, Kayla, do you want to get us started? Yeah, I I think it's possibly the most important question that we have here because If you have a loved one that has any kind of issues whatsoever, it doesn't matter whether it's substances, it could be mental health issues, it could be that they're abusive, it could be that they are obnoxious and nasty. We get to actually, you know, have the range of behaviors. I actually think that boundaries, if you're listening to this podcast, you have an excellent opportunity to work on the issue of boundaries because there's somebody who is acting in a way that you are not comfortable with. So let's talk about, let's define our terms first. So to me, the most important thing about boundaries is it has nothing to do with the other person. Although it has everything to do with the other person, but you are going to be looking at yourself and thinking, what am I willing to accept? What am I not willing to accept? And one of the issues I have with all of these dynamics when you have a dysfunctional person in your life is that what we wind up learning is how to accept the unacceptable. That's how we get into trouble is that we wind up becoming comfortable with the unacceptable and that becomes a habit or a way of being in the world. And that is not okay. It starts out the way it starts out. And a lot of times with all of the issues that we're talking about, it's based on childhood issues and, you know, basically adapting to our childhood and how we function in the world. And then we bring these people into our life, either consciously or not, where we are being pushed in a way that we find unacceptable, but we get comfortable with being treated poorly because we put the other person's needs first. I do agree. And bringing it from the family perspective and dealing with such a difficult illness and the dynamics that happen um, when dealing with substance use disorder. I see it as with family members. I see it as not setting boundaries is the better of two evils. According to them. Yeah, according to them and how they feel about it. I think that with families, oftentimes, and I don't even think people are aware of it, but I think what goes on is 
and, and I, you know, speaking for myself and talking to other families with so many other families and trying to set down boundaries, oftentimes the difficulties with actually setting down boundaries is it's a choice between the lesser of two evils. Because if I set this boundary down, my loved one might go out and do something that's so dangerous and so awful, I can't bear with it. So I might try and set a boundary down, but then I'm not going to hold to it because of the fear and anxiety of what's going to happen on the other side. Exactly. The layer that we're adding here, and I was listening to a podcast as always, which basically they were talking about the question that you need to ask yourself is, is this thought or behavior helpful or harmful to me? The point that you just made, Lori, is that the orientation of this family member is looking at, is this thought or behavior helpful or harmful to my loved one? And that's the problem, is that we're always looking to whether it's helpful or harmful to the other person, but we do not put ourselves in the equation. Our discussion about boundaries is what's helpful or harmful to me. Okay. I think that families do put themselves in there and are taking themselves into, into account because they can't bear with what's going to happen with their loved one. And it's very difficult to face. So I do think that actually that's very much in the forefront of making a decision to not set the boundary down or or to not even hold the boundary. Like, let's say you've set a boundary down and you've, you're not following through on consequences or whatever it is that you determined was going to be for the boundary. And I actually think it has a lot to do with yourself than it does with your loved one. I think it has a lot to do with your loved one, but it has a lot to do with yourself because I can't bear to go through those things. Even though it might, if I set down a boundary, and my loved one's behavior is heads in one particular direction, and it's not good by my view of it, I can't withstand the torture that I'm going to go through myself watching this happen. I don't think that families aren't taking themselves into account. They're just basically saying, I can't stand it. I can't go through it because it's just too difficult of a burden on me. To watch this happen. So then I think the next step is to be developing the tools to be able to get go through it and handle it. So that makes complete sense to me that you're so terrified and so wrought over the potential behavior and you're afraid they're going to die or severely injure themselves or just whatever they're doing feels unimaginable, unimaginable to you. That's when you need to start building yourself up because the problem is it's relentless. If it's a one-time situation, like I don't want this bad thing to happen, you could do that and, and that's fine and it doesn't wear you down as much, but this is persistent. So you're constantly you're constantly compromising your own well-being because of the fear of not being able to handle the terrible outcome. And so this is constant. And so you wind up in this dynamic where you're not taking care of yourself because you're so worried about what's going to happen. And that's the part that you have to change. You have to start being able to bear whatever their behavior is going to be because you see it's persistent. This is where I always think to myself, how come that person is living so edgy in such an edgy way and they're still alive? How come they, as I said to somebody today, it's like, 
you know, we have these people that are doing horrendously harmful, destructive things, and somehow they're still alive. And I could describe it as it's almost like they have they're surrounded by rubber, like they they fall and they bounce, they fall and they bounce and they keep bouncing back. And you're getting destroyed over time. You're getting worn down. You're getting depleted. And how do you even respond at that point when it keeps happening over and over and over again? So just imagine this. I totally understand what you're saying. And that strategy might work for some people. And, and I have heard this idea of wrapping your loved one in something that's safe and imagining this and your loved one does keep coming back. My thoughts on this are there's also a large group of people that to me is trying to convince me that I need to do this. And I was one that when I was first setting down boundaries, this idea that I was wrapping my loved one in a safe spot or that they had kept coming back wouldn't work for me because I had found him gone. So to me, it was a reality that this is something that absolutely could happen. And every time he left my house and was out there and I didn't know what was going on, he was gone. He was dead. So for me, what I needed wasn't convincing that I should do this particular thing. What I needed was some something that was going to help me baby step it over there and not do this drastic. I'm going to set down this huge boundary right now in this moment and not let this stuff happen anymore. So it was find that one small boundary, have success with it and that reinforcing is what's going to get me to set down a, a little bit more of a boundary and a little bit more of a boundary and, and move me there, if that makes sense. Dominique, you want to say something? Excellent example of this, I think, is the, the wife who wakes up at 11 o'clock at night and her husband is still not home or her wife is not, not home and she believes all the worst right there, right? But she has, has set a boundary for herself in that she is not going to have this reaction when this happens every time, because it's happened time and time before, that she's going to give it just three hours. She'll give it till two in the morning. If she hasn't fallen asleep by then, she can give it another. She can take it in three hour blocks, but she's not going to move over from her boundary, which is to jump in the car and start looking under the bridges and in the baseball trenches and everything else moms and wives and people who love somebody with addiction do to try and save them, right? It's just, I am making this change and this promise to myself. I'm going to try to hold it. And in my case, it's baby stepping. So I'm only looking to hold it for three hours before I freak out and start calling and, and doing everything that I, I feel I should do to somehow save him or her. So I guess I wasn't clear at the beginning. I do not believe in hard and fast boundaries, by the way. I don't believe like, if you do this, I'm going to do this. I do not believe in pronouncements. So I think this is a really, really good clarification. To me, what boundaries are, are you getting in touch with yourself? It's really about, you know, right now, what's the next right thing for me to do? And I feel like what the boundary is, is that you start to have a sense of yourself as opposed to just what's going on with the other person. And that you have, you start to increase this awareness of your reactions, of your thoughts, of your behavior, of the, the choices that you've made and the choices that you have at this moment. And what's the immediate boundary? So what happens is that every minute is a new decision. 
I actually believe that part of the problem that we have is we make these gigantic pronouncements, which is if you if you use, I'm going to kick you out. That is so not what I'm talking about. It's more like, how am I feeling right now? How do I take care of myself right now? And it could be that I'm going to get in the car and look, but it also could be I need to work on some tools right now to self-soothe. I need to actually find techniques that I could actually calm my system down. The podcast that I was listening to, it's that she allows herself two what ifs. What if he's dead? What if he's laying in a ditch right now and he needs to be calling an ambulance? Then you have to distract yourself. That's a technique that she was talking about, which is based on resiliency. And the interesting thing that she said about distraction is she talked about immersing yourself in something. Because if you're just like, oh, I'm going to watch TV, that's not going to distract you because you get every commercial you're going to be thinking. But it could be that you have a hobby that you do that's very distracting. It could be that you listen to some music or that you listen to a podcast. And what happens is that this is your way of incrementally changing your behavior. Again, what craft is about and allies in recovery about is looking at yourself and your behavior. And what happens is that when people first step foot in this program, they're looking at the other person's behavior and reacting to that. What we're talking about is you need to look at yourself and be able to choose your responses, not just react. And so the boundary is about awareness, noticing Noticing what your feelings are. Sometimes you have to immerse yourself in the feeling, not the thought, the feeling. So if you're feeling, you know, worried, let yourself feel it, but don't be thinking every horrible thought. Or if you do, you give yourself 15 minutes of passionate worrying and then stop, which is what you're saying, Dominique. It's like, then it's like, okay, I just did that. I'm not going out, but I got to worry. No, we totally agree. And I think that that is my point is that actually the individual that's making the boundary, if you're struggling to make the boundary down, it's something that turning your attention to something inward, you got to work on something within yourself, whether that's with a professional or whether it's just learning mindful meditation or whether that's just recognizing your feelings in the moment or, but there's something that that you need to focus on yourself. I also want to add one little piece. I hear about the television, but one thing is if the struggle is at night, turning on the television and trying to get rest and putting on a really boring show is a really smart thing to do. I want to talk about, because I hear this constantly, constantly from families in the meetings that I hold. Oh, my loved one's not good at boundaries. They don't do it. They don't follow it. And they never, it never works. So I really try oftentimes to understand, well, what do you mean by works? Because if you're telling me that you set down a boundary and your loved one didn't follow the boundary, it's your job to manage it, not your loved one. And I would expect your loved one not to follow the boundary at least the first couple of times that you set it down because they're not used to this boundary. So they're going to test the water. So really, it's your job to manage that boundary because it's for you. It's not for your loved one. And then also this idea that on the other side of once you do set the boundary down, that they're going to go and do something that you want them to do. It's 90% of the time not going to happen that way. 
right? And it's not about what they do on the other side as to whether you set the boundary down or not. And I would argue that actually, if you're setting down the boundary and you're just trying it, then it is working because that's the goal. The goal is to actually set down a boundary and that the person who's not good with the boundary is actually maybe the person that's setting it down. If you're claiming that your loved one isn't good with boundaries, actually, maybe maybe you're the one that's not good at the boundary yet. So another example that comes to mind from recent work is the mom of the infant child whose husband drank in the house. Lori and I worked with her a little and um, he wouldn't leave. And so her boundary became when he drinks, I leave. That's a boundary I can maintain. That's a boundary, you know, I can manage and I can work it out. So where I need to go and where I will go. And she she was extremely frightened to do it the first time or two. And her husband predictably, you know, blew up and screamed at her. And then by the fourth time he was leaving the house to drink and she was able to go back in. And the reason is because she kept holding that boundary. He was playing out every which way he could around her. She just held her boundary very calmly and he changed and at least started to drink outside the house, which by the way is craft because he reduced the amount of drinking he was doing because he could only do it outside of the house. So there was there were fewer places to go to drink. And they had actually been able to talk about sharing the space and his drinking. So it's not easy and it's not, as, as you've been saying, something that's gonna work the first time. But if it's a safe, good boundary for you, it's, it's incrementally feasible, you have to hang in there. But also what you're saying, Dominique, is what can you control? And that's what this is about. It's like, I think that what happens is we see these very dysfunctional acting out beings and we're like, oh my God, they're out of control. They're going to come in and blow up my life. You need to break things down into micro decisions to figure out what part of this you can control. And it's all about your choices and your behavior. And, you know, it might be that you, if the person doesn't live with you, that you lock the door. And it might be that even if they live in the same town with you and they're acting out, that you start to do the work on yourself to separate your identity from this person or figure out what you're going to respond to the people in town. Or it could be that like this person, if they're in your house doing it, then you leave. That's your control. But again, I don't even think that it's about pronouncements. It's about, you know, hey, I don't like it when you do this, so I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I like that. I'm not going to do it. What I thought of when you when you brought up that example, Dominique, is this idea that if you're not there, they have no one to rail against. They have no one to argue with. Right. They might, I don't know, punch the wall, punch the hole in the wall or whatever, but they're not arguing with you. They can argue with the wall or they can argue with the cabinet if they want. But typically, in my experience, they may stay angry, but it calms down. And people don't stay in that state. The other thing that happens is it's kind of like a warning, but I've done this where I've had to leave, right? Because I'm not going to get into this this argument. I'm not going to get pulled into it. I'm not going to go for a screaming match and and, and calling each other names and, and I'm getting frustrated. I will tell you that oftentimes I get in the car and I drive away and I'm really amped up. 
I am amped up. I can't believe I'm the one that has to leave the house. And I think it's a really important piece to address because you might feel that way when you get in the car or you're the one who has to leave. And kind of understanding that actually by leaving, it may feel like you're giving up power because you're giving ground. That person gets to take the ground, they get to take the house or that space, but actually you're really, you're the one who's now empowered because I'm going to drive away for about 45 minutes to an hour and I am going to be able to hold to my boundary. I'm not going to be yelled at anymore. I'm not going to be treated this way anymore. And actually what's happening is you're empowering everybody. You're empowering yourself in that I'm not going to be treated this way, but you're also empowering your loved one to help them to see this is how arguments are handled. We don't yell at each other. We don't scream at each other. And I'm not going to accept this inappropriate behavior from you anymore. And it might take four or five times of doing that before things settle down. But eventually your loved one will get it. They will get it that all the temper tantrum stuff isn't going to pull you back in. We had a woman who wrote in recently describing how her daughter is sending her emails about suicide, uh, ideation, and, you know, ideas of wanting to kill herself. And the mother is taking on all kinds of verbal abuse through text, through phones, and in person when the daughter does come to her house. And you can see in her message that the responsibility for the daughter has always been the mother's. And that now that the daughter can't push the mother the way she wants her pushed in order to get her drug, do her lifestyle right now. She's not ready to look at anything. She sends all this abuse right to the mother because the mother has ultimately been responsible. And now the mother's stepping away. So be ready for a huge reaction when you walk away from that house and you leave, especially a, an adult child or an intimate other in the house to contemplate what is their responsibility and, and what is actually yours? Because they've often thought most of it was yours. And so these moments alone, being left at the door late, whatever, you know, instead of fighting with them, you just kind of leave them, walk away, leave them, walk away. Not for long, just a couple hours provides them that essential potential moment of reflection about maybe they're slightly responsible for the, the situation of this person I love walking away. Yeah, and I, I also feel like these are opportunities that we need to take. And I feel like we we make the risk so severe in our heads. If I don't do what I've always done, or if I draw the line, something horrible is gonna happen, but then we don't leave this space for, what if this helps to create change? Or what if this creates enough discomfort that there's there's a possibility for shifting? And I feel like, it's kind of like somebody taking up a lot of space. There's no growth if there's too much stuff going on in one space. You can't grow if you're not uncomfortable. And what happens is no matter how negative the dynamic is, everybody's comfortable. Everybody knows what to expect. Everybody knows the drill. And no matter how tortured you might feel, that's comfort because it's familiar. And what we're talking about today is how do we change the dynamic, which means that we are automatically going into discomfort. Even if we know that it's the right thing to do, it's uncomfortable for us and for them. But change only happens with discomfort. It does not happen with comfort. And even though we look at their lives and we're like, 
that can't be comfortable. They're leaving, living on the street. They're freezing. They don't have enough food. They're like living with a gang, whatever. And we think how uncomfortable it is, but it really is their comfort zone. And when we step out and change the dynamic, we're creating this opportunity for discomfort, which is the only possibility for change. The only word I would change is discomfort. And I agree with you. We stay in our own torture because it's it's something we know and something we're familiar with. So the unknown is an added torture, which is why having to set that boundary down and having the unknown outcome is so torturous. And this is, I think, a really good thing to kind of let families know. Yeah, you're going to get in that car and drive away and possibly, you know, there were multiple times I would drive away and just cry and cry and cry. But that was an opportunity for me to let those thoughts and emotions kind of flood in for a little while. Have a little pity party, which I think is perfectly fine. Okay, you know, I can't believe I'm the one who has to get in the car and drive away. And I'm, you know, I can't stand this situation and feelings of I'm going way back to the beginning. Nothing will ever change. But then once I've done that, it's like pretty quickly. You can't do that for, believe it or not, for very long, especially if you're driving the car. You do get distracted. Oh, I've got to take a left. Oh, I've, you know, stop or, and eventually it does die down. It doesn't mean that I'm going to be happy. It doesn't die down to a point where I'm feeling all joyful or anything like that, but it dies down to a level that's more manageable. Other thoughts I can start bringing in real thoughts into my mind. Okay. You know, what am I going to say? How am I going to deal with this? What am I going to do when I walk through that door? And maybe I haven't, I haven't had enough space yet. So maybe I'm going to walk through the door and say, you know, I'm really not ready to talk about this right now. I still need some time to calm down. Maybe tomorrow afternoon, I do want to talk about it again. But right now is not the time. And I've often found that my loved one calmed down enough and they're just really angry. And, and oftentimes they're angry at themselves because they did flip out. Although they may still be angry, they also take some space. Well, I think before you use the word tantrum, and I feel like that's a really good model to see this because when people are altered or you change something and they get really upset, it is very much like what happens to a two-year-old. They don't have the tools to calm themselves down. They don't know how to, how to deal with it. So they ramp up and they also ramp up for the purpose of getting a reaction from you, which is what a tantrum is about is, I don't like what's going on. I can't deal with this. So you need to help me. You need to fix this. And what happens is that there's there's this research that shows that if you let a child actually full out tantrum, it ha it's like the bell curve. It goes up and ramps and ramps and ramps up and then it's unsustainable over time. So then it drops down and ultimately their system calms down in a little bit if, as long as you don't engage. And so the tool that you're describing, Lori, is the and, and Dominique is the stepping out technique where somebody's having their thing. And instead of going at it, trying to calm them down, trying to talk them out of it, trying to tell them your side of the story, you do our favorite technique, which is to pause, which in this case means to step out um, and get away from it so that they could have their process go through it without you so that you don't keep it going for longer than it needs to go. Right. And I see it as removing immediate rewards. 
because you're reinforcing it. If you stay there and you engage, you're reinforcing. Exactly. That's a reward. Oh, okay. Okay. I throw a temper tantrum and you respond to it. So I will keep throwing a temper tantrum so that you'll keep responding to it. To me, this is removing immediate rewards and not reinforcing that that behavior. So that when it's over, you can step back in and the contrast from having gone away and stepped back in is rewarding, right? So you've created the contrast in the behavior and how you're reacting to it. And you've created a, a reward that you can remove yourself and one that you can provide and give when you want to be reinforcing yourself. That's what I'm doing with my dog. I just, you take away all rewards because they've done something really bad. And then you just start rewarding the good behavior. It's like a reboot. But the other thing is that you're rebooting because what happens is if you stay in, you then become part of the problem because you're mad and you're reactive and you're you're responding poorly as usual. And so what happens is when you step back, you then get to calm your system down, which allows you to come back in in a very different way. So it gives you control over your behavior, because let's face it, when you're in the middle of these things, you lose control. You say things that you're going to regret. You wind up being part of the problem. You in, you engage in this negative behavior. So you're as responsible as they are if you stay in. And so what we're saying is step out, remove yourself, calm your system down, work with yourself. And by the way, this is a perfect example of a boundary because you're put you're putting space between you and the other person. And space is a boundary as opposed to being in it, which is lack of boundary. So this is a really good example of what a boundary looks like. It's not like here's a line. You cannot cross this line. If you step over, I'm going to do blah, 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 blah. It's like mm, the, here's the line. What do I do if the line is crossed? And again, stepping out is a very, very strong behavioral choice because it actually totally establishes the line and what you're saying. And you can pull that off as opposed to if you do this, I have to do this crazy thing to you or I'm going to make you do this. I can't make you do anything, but I can certainly control myself. I love this idea of when you start falling into this type of a situation with your loved one, just imagine, okay, here's my two-year-old temper tantrum. How would I deal with a two-year-old? I often did that. I didn't look at it as a two-year-old temper tantrum. I looked at it as a teenage tantrum because I think when, when an individual becomes a teenager, a lot of that behavior is very reminiscent of toddlerhood. And so to me, I felt like, okay, I'm dealing with a teenage temper tantrum right now. And that's how I have to deal with this. So maybe, maybe people can use that scenario in their head. Okay, here we go. Temper tantrum stage, right? What do you do with a temper tantrum? This is what you do. Well, and and I, I like to use my mother as an example because I was a horrible teenager. And my mother used to say things like, you can't talk to me that way. And you, and you know, you don't talk to your friends this way. <laughs> and then I, that would just ramp me up because I was terrible. And so when my daughter turned into adolescent and did the exact same thing, I was like, when you step forward and say, oh, you can't talk to me that way, that just made me crazier and more vicious with my mother. And so what would happen with my daughter is I'm like, all right, I do want to kill her right now. I am <laughs> furious right now. I want to say you can't talk to me that way. But that puts me in victim mode. And there's no way I'm doing that. So what I would do is 
go silent and walk away, which made her crazy. It pissed her off so much, but it was this very powerful tool. And when I did the other thing where I would respond to her, we would ramp up and ramp up. And then I would wind up having to apologize half the time because I would do something that I regretted. So the reason that I support this model is I hate to apologize. So if I step out, I don't have anything to apologize for. And it's a much more powerful tool because then I'm not part of the problem. And my boundary is I'm not engaging with this behavior, which is a very powerful choice. What I heard from you, Kayla, is just imagine being a teenager and having mom say, you shouldn't talk to me like that. I'm your mother. That's like challenging them. Oh, oh, really? I'll show you. I could do that. Yeah, just wait. You think that's bad. It was like putting lighter fluid on yeah, it. It's like, it's like it's the same. It's the same concept, right? It's the same, same thought process. Well, well, ladies, this was a great conversation. And so I'm hoping Kayla, can you go ahead summarize. and summarize? <laughs> okay. So, so basically the, the discussion today was on boundaries and the issue with boundaries is that they happen moment to moment. It is not about making a predetermined decision that's going to be hard and fast that you're going to follow and actually maintain because that's unrealistic. Boundaries are about checking in with yourself on a regular basis, allowing yourself to know what you feel, and then having a tool belt full of tools that allow you to make choices at that moment. So you can anticipate things, but it's for your own decision-making at that moment. Do I need to leave? Do I need to make space? Do I need to not say anything? If that person does something that I don't like, what do I get to do that has nothing to do with the other person? What are my choices? And also at this moment, what is unacceptable to me? And I think what's really important about boundaries is that we don't make pronouncements like the the pronouncements is if you do blah, 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 I'm going to do blah, 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 because that has gotten us into trouble more times than not, because if we then don't follow up, we have no credibility. The boundaries are happening for yourself. You are basically exploring them in your mind and making choices moment to moment about how you want to engage with this person and what options you have for your behavior at this very singular moment. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I hope everybody enjoyed today's podcast on boundaries. We'll see you on the Allies in Recovery website. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode of Coming Up for Air spoke to you. If you're listening in today on a podcast platform that isn't the Allies member site, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. This helps others find the show more easily. If you have a suggestion for a new topic or a guest for the show, please reach out through the Contact Us form on alliesinrecovery.net. Special thanks to our hosts, our guests, and our production team.